but at one point they had nothing and they took all the risk. They put all their savings into things. They went bankrupt, bankrupt a number of times or they tried and they came really close. Um, they absorbed enormous stress. They elected to go off the path. They elected not to get paid a regular salary. And um, every night they go to bed with fires burning at their workplace and having to be good with that and then sacrificing all the things that come with family and relationship in the pursuit of this. Hey everyone, welcome to Switch Hub TV. It's your host, Wei and John. Today on the show, we have Phil Hayes St. Clair. Phil is the CEO and a co-founder of DropBio, a direct-to-consumer digital health and biotech company focused on chronic inflammation. He is also an adjunct associate professor at the University of New South Wales, teaching entrepreneurship and innovation to MBA candidates at the Australian Graduate School of Management. Phil, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey guys, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time to be on our show. Welcome. We want to start off with how and why did you get into science? Oh, look, probably the squarest peg in the roundest hole, I think is probably the, the short answer to that. Um, you know, from, from a very young age, I, I was just able to convince people to do things they ordinarily wouldn't do. Um, and so as it, you know, from a, from a young from that young point, uh, I just felt there was a bit of an entrepreneurial sort of streak. Um, my parents had it um, and it sort of was sort of ingrained. Um, after school, I, I finished and went to, um, I went to the army where I spent a lot of time and I thought I'd sort of retire a professional soldier. And this is all before September 11 um, and everything that's gone on so far. Um, I had to do a degree at some point to sort of, you know, participate in the, in the career I wanted, which was to fly. Um, and after starting four different undergraduate degrees, I ended up sort of choosing science um, and immunology and microbiology for no other reason. I found it fascinating, um, but it was a, it was a fast track to nowhere. Um, I didn't need it for that. I needed to fly. Um, and look, fast forward from that, that didn't work out in the military because I had a bad eye problem. Um, left there, got a job, didn't love it, started building companies. And, you know, 15, 20 years later, after building a number of companies, uh, drop bio came about um, before you know, I was, I was about to go back to med school as a mature age student. Um, I thought that medicine was where I could have the biggest impact. Um, and my now chairman at the time said, I think you should come and look at an idea that I've got. Uh, I looked at it, looked really compelling. Um, and, you know, here we are later, sort of three years, three, almost four years later after we've built Drop. So it's, it's, been a, it's been a fun ride. Yeah. I just want to like, I guess, go into a little bit of those details that you mentioned, because it, it, it was quite a bit of a period in your life. As you said, you enlisted in the Australian Army following high school, you know, you worked in the finance sector for a large portion of your career before, I guess, eventually finding your way back into science, which is, it's quite a journey. Um, yeah. So can you talk about those transitions and turning points in your life? You know, what, what was going on and um, give us some insight there. Yeah. So probably not dissimilar to most people that would be watching this um, or listening to this, you know, there's, there's a lot of time in life where you're trying to work out what you should be doing with life, right? Like it's, it's not an easy thing to solve. And I think the dumbest question somebody can ask is, you know, what do you want to do or where do you want to be in five years time? Like I, I've never seen somebody able to answer that in a compelling format. Um, and for me, you know, out of school, I, I was an army cadet. I loved it. Like I just found, uh, I found brotherhood in that. I just loved it. So moving to the army was, was a natural piece. And that was, for me, was going to be the game. I, I would have very happily done 20 or 30 years as a soldier um, and then come out of that and I don't know, retire to the beach or do whatever. Like that was, I was very, very happy with that. 
I never studied science at school. Um, I was a humanities sort of guy, you know, histories, geographies, that kind of thing. <clears throat> and when it came to um, university, my, my father enrolled me in, a, in my first degree. It was a business management degree uh, and I hated it. And then I, in the army, I met some guys who were engineers. They, they were just really interesting, fascinating guys. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll try engineering. So I took, took some electives I, you know, and just taking taking electives and those kind of things back in the day, you could do that without sort of having a formal application at university. So I don't know how that works right now. I'm pretty sure it's not easy, um, but I did that. Then I found my way to physics and then into, um, and then into a bit of biology. And it was just really fascinating. And I just got captivated by it. So it was really by osmo osmosis, I think would, would be the right thing to say. Um, you know, when I had to discharge the army, that was a really tough, uh, that was a spin cycle chapter of life, probably four years where I had to sort of reassess what I was doing, how I was doing it, my friends, my values, relationships, the whole thing. It was a spin cycle. It was terrible. Um, but I did rust on to the best leaders I could find. They taught me a lot. So my time in financial services, which is about you know six or seven years, um, was just an ability to reset. Um, and my, you know, my reflection on that is I wish it wouldn't have taken me six or seven years to do that. Right. Like I wish I could have got to that point quicker because um, when I started building companies, because I was good at convincing people to do stuff. We had some really interesting ideas to get into market. Capital was cheap. Um, it was, it, it, there, were, there were good ideas to have a crack at. Um, but at some point you sort of, you learn more and more every time you build a company, you know, when people sort of say, why do accountants or lawyers practice or say they practice law, practice accounting, practice medicine. It's because they're learning every time they do it. And in entrepreneurship, it's exactly the same thing. The more companies you build, you learn how to do things better and quicker and cheaper and more effectively. And it becomes addictive. Um, <clears throat> and for the most part, um, if you do it well, because it takes about 10 years to build a great company in your life, if you do it well, you'll have five or six attempts to do that. And most people are fortunate to be able to do that. Some um, get really rattled by the first time. It's totally, totally expected. Um, and they just go, I never want to go through that again. Um, maybe I'm just a moron and I just keep on coming back for it. But the reality is that um, I spent some time in um, consumer software, building companies, I learned a bunch of stuff. I got bored with software. I didn't, I just couldn't find a way to make that. Um, like how many, how many more apps could you have? Like how much more software can be written? The answer is a lot. If you're into the sort of the architecture and infrastructure sort of side of software now, but in consumer tech, that was coming to an end. Uh, it's a lot slower now than what it used to be. And um, I had always dreamt about, and I had some intersections in, in life where um, thanks to training in the army and other, other knowledge I gained, I found myself in these bizarre situations where I was the first responder or um, having to help people in, in some pretty dire circumstances and the knowledge I'd learned, I just put into practice and it was just a real rush, right? It was just, and it took months and months and months for that feeling to go away. Um, and at some point it was, well, maybe you should go and do that. And the way I thought I could do that was through medicine. Um, what I know about medicine now as a consequence of sort of working with doctors and, and a lot of clinician researchers is that it's a fascinating area, but my skill set probably wouldn't have been really well applied for that because in a relatively rigid system, there's only so much you can do. Um, when you think about sort of, you know, can you apply product building and company building to a really um, well-established industry and can you do it in concert as opposed to disruptive, you know, trying to destroy value? Um, and and I should make make it clear that, Disruption doesn't need to be destructive. It can be often very creative. Um, you know, I found that I could be a good entrepreneur in healthcare through biotech and 
you know, as soon as I started to see the science live behind drop, you know, four years ago, it was like this key was unlocked in my, in my brain from all of my undergraduate study, which was 20 years ago. All of a sudden, the language that was being used, the techniques that were being applied, for some reason, I just knew it. It was like, oh, I knew it was all back there somewhere. I just never had a reason to sort of get after it. And now I did. Um, but that was now paired with, you know, some pretty decent company building experience. And so I melded the two together and, you know, I wake up every day with my team and we, we solve wicked, wicked, wicked problems. Um, I wake up with a smile on my face. Like this is, this is living my best life. Uh, and the team is, the team is loving it as well. Um, and, you know, part of my job is to find ways to help young scientists and young folks who don't really know exactly what step to take next to give them some opportunities so they can experience it and frankly tell me, look, yeah, this, this would be awesome. Let's do it. Or actually this is not for me and just step off so they can go and find the next thing. Um, and I encourage anyone who's, you know, the question I ask in most of the interviews for people now, which I was taught by an old mentor of mine is to ask people what they want to be remembered for. And if they can answer that question, then you want to be having more conversations with them because they've thought about not where do I want to be in five years? They've thought about actually, if I want to be remembered this way and I want to have an impact, then this is one of maybe a thousand ways they could do it. If they're the right fit, then they should maybe have a crack at your at your company to make that happen. Yeah. I know John has a bunch of questions coming up, so I'll lead him into this. Um, um, but first of all, can you yeah. tell us what 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 is Drop Bio and what's the problem and gap that you're trying to address? Yeah. So at a really high level, uh, Drop Bio is a digital health company that's focused on chronic inflammation. Um, we are able to measure really interesting markers uh, from finger prick blood that's collected remotely. And that's enabling us to unlock the body's natural early warning system. So chronic inflammation is present at really low concentrations and all, all the markers that support it um, when chronic conditions start to emerge, right? So cancers, diabetes, arthritis, anything that you can point to as being, um, being chronic. And it's our job to find all those markers and those signatures as we call them to point towards those conditions so that we can raise the flag when the warning level has gone up and create the underlying infrastructure and data so that um, consumers can understand more about their health so doctors can treat it more effectively and for treatment providers to be able to create the next generation of treatments man i really like your journey it seems I wouldn't say um, it's it's a very long journey, and I appreciate that you actually coming to the show. Um, the only thing I would like to ask is that for Drop Bio, Drop Bio, where do you get the idea of Drop Bio from? Like the, like the product and the science. Yeah, that's right. Um, look, without going into classified details, of course. Oh no, no, look, science and medicine is built off the shoulder of giants, right? Like we, we've not invented anything here we've looked at literature we've looked at the evidence and we've gone well actually the next logical evolution of this is to try this idea um and we're, we're doing it because technology allows us to do it right like 10 years ago the ability to me for us to measure the things that we can measure now the cost we can do it for was just it would never have happened um and now we have the fortune whether it is or not around covid where people have just really stepped up to wanting to know more about their health and now it's become more important to know answers to those questions. So people want to fund and support that kind of idea. It's really difficult to get the timing right on this sort of stuff. And um, we, I think we've sort of struck it gold in, the, in that respect. So, you know, from our point of view, it's, um, 
It's about building on top of that evidence base so we can get that science and that knowledge into as many scientists and doctors' hands as, as physically possible. Um, and we're just trying to run fast to do that with, with some tweaks to the model, right? We're trying to get people not to go to, not, not all the time, lots of stress, not all the time to go to a pathology center to do a blood test. If they can do it at home and they can send that back, um, fantastic. If that can be done seamlessly with little discomfort and great convenience, that unlocks a whole other area of opportunity, which has never really been sort of tapped before. So it's those kind of things that, that make it there. Um, yeah, we add some innovation. Yes, we bring some amazing people from around the world to help us solve some really compelling, highly confidential stuff. Um, but it's an amazing journey, right? Like it's just, it's awesome. And we look forward to all the stuff that we learn when it's the right time to publish that data so that the next set of entrepreneurs or next set of doctors, clinicians, whomever go, actually that's, that worked really well or it didn't work really well, we'll try it a different way. And maybe we can, we can find a way to, to change healthcare in our context. And that's what every scientist and every doctor around the world is trying to do. So we're just part of a giant collective community. We just have to be doing it slightly differently on this particular area. And what was the biggest challenge you faced when launching DropBio? <laughs> the biggest challenge was that the, no one no, the, the biggest challenge we faced was um, when we were raising our first round of capital, um, the story about Theranos broke. Um, and so uh, everyone probably is well familiar with Theranos, but you know, for us, we were called drop and we were a drop of blood and their proposition was a drop of blood too. And so immediately every pitching conversation I had was tell me about Theranos. Why are you the same or why are you different? And it was the first time in my career where I'd had to dedicate a complete slide in a pitch deck to explain why we weren't Theranos. Um, difficult to get away from. We still raised the capital, but it was one of those really odd, strange things you couldn't have really ever planned for. Um, so, and, yep. No, go ahead, no, no, that's fine. So you, you've mentioned, you know, and um, if people haven't picked up on, on it already, Phil, you're, you're what people would, define as a serial entrepreneur what, what do you think is the biggest misconception about the entrepreneur life you know for for people who are just getting into the game or hoping to get into the game what, what do you see as the biggest misconception that it's just a giant pitching competition right that you know you see entrepreneurs um <clears throat> you know the most famous of them um, and we all know who they are the musks of the world um, you know, the Mike Cannon Brooks of the world, <clears throat> the team over at Canva, all these companies, you know, we, we look at them today and <clears throat> excuse me, we sort of go, they've just got it good. Right. But at one point they had nothing and they took all the risk. They put all their savings into things. They went bankrupt, bankrupt a number of times, or they tried and they came really close. Um, they absorbed enormous stress they elected to go off the path. They elected not to get paid a regular salary. And um, every night they go to bed with fires burning at their workplace and having to be good with that and then sacrificing all the things that come with family and relationship in the pursuit of this. When you do it a few times, you realize it's not great to put all your eggs in one basket, but you've got to learn that somehow. So I think for the most part, people don't get that this is really, really difficult. Um, when we talk about what we've done, um, the reason it might sound coherent and all together is because we practice this hundreds of times every week. Um, we have to pitch hundreds. I, I pitch thousands of times drop to investors and, and partners around the world. You just get good at it, but it's not to say that it's not stressful. 
Um, you know, I've got two young daughters um, and my wife, immensely capable woman. We run a busy household. And for me at my age, it's about, you know, paying all the attention I can to my daughters and my wife while parallel processing everything I can about my business, my team, partners, products, distribution, funding, all this stuff. And it can be a lot to juggle. Don't get me wrong. I love it, right? I have a hugely great time in life, um, but it's not for everyone. And I think that the fact is that you don't have to worry as somebody thinking about building something. This is not an, an end. So this is not an or situation, right? Be an entrepreneur or get a job. <clears throat> it's not like that. I do both. Right? Have a side hustle. Everyone should have one. I encourage all my team to have a side hustle because it inspires creativity. And it's really important. So I, I think that's the biggest misconception. So as a teacher of um, UNSW um, for, you know, teaching entrepreneurship and innovation to MBA, um, if, what is it that you um, actually teach the students in terms of creativity? So we teach the entrepreneurial mindset, essentially. Over, over 11 weeks, we teach them about what it means to have an idea, how to frame the idea and get out of your mind, um, and then test it and see if there's a real opportunity there. You know, get out of the building, understand how to create experiments, how to test, how to realize there's not a market there for the idea. Your idea was interesting, but it's been done a thousand times before. And so just because you didn't know that, we show you techniques how to sort of understand that quickly. So instead of spending four years or five years on an idea, sinking a bunch of time and effort and money into it, you can work out if there's a, you know, a there there, as we talk about it, um, within about a month. And that means you can just either kill an idea off and move on to the next one, or really sink your teeth into one and really go hard after it. Um, and that mindset's really important, particularly for business school candidates, so postgraduate students who are coming from a workplace with experience and they're trying to work out how are they going to be great leaders into the future? And every single leader needs to have an entrepreneurial mindset because nothing is fixed anymore. Arguably, nothing was fixed in the first place. So we teach them to sort of have that adaptability. Um, and it's 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 amazing. The students we have coming through that school are some of the best in the world. Um, and it's a real pleasure. And I get to collaborate with you know my colleagues at Harvard and Stanford and other places and sort of share and understand how they teach that mindset and bring that back into the classroom here as well. Um, so for me, you know, I, I talk about being, you know, a girl dad, a serial entrepreneur and an educator. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a girl dad because I'm a raging feminist and I think it's really important. I build companies and I, and I educate because I think it's anyone who knows something should pay it forward, just like what you guys are doing with this podcast, right? It's, it's important that people learn from other people. So yeah, that's why. I think that leads very well onto the, onto the next question, I guess, Phil. What, what's your advice to anyone wanting to start their own um, biotech startup? Yeah, I think um, this is one of those areas where you want to understand everything that's come before you. Um, so history plays a massive role in, in every company, but more so in biotech, largely because biotech's expensive. Um, you know, trials are expensive, science is expensive. Um, and most people with an idea rush towards the solution without becoming sort of obsessed with the problem. Right. And so I could, you know, let's imagine that we had an idea, the three of us, and we went to try and, you know, we've got a crystal clear idea about what the future looks like because we enacted a solution. That's cool. But if you created one solution and you misread the problem, then that solution is useless. 
right? So what we do with MBA candidates, what I teach people outside of business school and what I do every day here is that whenever I have an idea, whether it's for a product or a service, something in drop, something outside drop, um, I race to understand the history of that business idea or that business model. And I do that by, I have a, um, a researcher I use on Fiverr and I pay her $50 uh, for every idea that I have. And um, what she receives from me is like, um, like a loom video, like a, a recording like this. I sort of say, here's what I'm thinking. So she can hear my intent. And it's like two or three minutes. And then all I'm asking her to do is to spend an hour Googling that brief. And all she's sending back to me is the links she discovers. And then I will go and look at all those links at some point in the future and just sort of understand what's there. That's the most rapid way I've found to understand the first part of the history of the idea that I've got. And if I find that there's a whole bunch of existing companies or organizations trying to do the same thing, then you've got two choices. You can either look at it and go, look too hard, they're already doing it. Or you can shamelessly steal what they've done and try and build on top of it. And if you ignore that point in history, then the risk of your business failing increases exponentially because you're now creating in a vacuum without understanding the history. And so for anyone trying to do it, it's like, get your idea out of your head. So at least you can express it and then go and find people that can answer these questions for you. The reason I use you know, my Fiverr researcher is that she has none of the biases I have, right? She lives in Africa. She's 26 years old. She's not a white guy living in a really, you know, mature country with conservative you know, conservatism across the board. She's somebody who can look at this and is trained in research. So she knows what to look for and she can tease out what I'm looking for as well. So it's, it's just a really helpful tool. It's the best 50 bucks I ever spend. So Phil, what do you think about, um, what's your insight about Shark Tank? Is it a good way to learn entrepreneurship in that sense? Or do you need a degree or degree qualification for entrepreneur or to become an entrepreneur? Uh, no, I don't think you need a degree. No, not, not, not at all. Do I think you need a degree? Um, the Shark Tank is, is, a, is one manifestation of the process, which is to engage investors, raise capital. But when you see anyone that sort of rocks out there on Shark Tank, whether it be the US version, the Australian version, wherever, um, those entrepreneurs have put a lot of time thinking about that concept, that idea, that prototype, that business model, how to sell, how to distribute, how to market. And you can only do that by getting out of the building, right? You can't read a book on this stuff. Um, you can read the principles. You can learn from people like Reid Hoffman, you know, Masters of Scale. You can learn all the tactics. But until you learn the tools, like you're not going to go too far. So um, I've met plenty of people who have tried to study entrepreneurship um, and it's an interesting area to learn about, but it's a discipline that's learned through application. And I think you just got to get out there and do it and fall flat on your face doing it, right? Like I can't tell you the number of ideas I've had which have just ended up being disasters, right? That's just part of the course. And you feel good about it. So you go, well, if I didn't have any failures, do you think I've learned anything? The answer is probably not. Wow. Phil, what, what, do you, what do you anticipate besides Dropbox, I guess? What, what do you anticipate will be the most exciting trends that we'll see in personalized health? Or well, I guess, what do, you have your, what do you have your blinkers on? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm really focused on um, how things like biomarkers that we look at and other companies look at as well how a huge amount of knowledge can be gained um, to create sort of uh, medicines and treatments for things that are really 
tricky and troublesome right now. Um, I'm excited about that because it's re- it's objective and we can now collect it at such scale and put it to such good use in ethics approved studies and, and a whole range of other scientific pursuits, which are really, really important to humanity in the same way that it is that, you know, renewable energy is for, um, for, the, for, in- for the environment. Um, so I think that's really important. I think um, there's a marrying that's going to happen between genetics and um, proteomics is sort of our primary field and all the other markers that you can measure, like the data capacity and the, and the capacity to write models and the machine learning to make sense of everything that you're seeing um, is becoming you know, more and more accessible. But I think the thing that is most exciting is that people now just care more. Like when I see people of my age, so people between the age of 40 and 50, right? Um, we now have a desire to learn more because we saw how our, our, our parents aged and some aged really well and some really didn't age very well at all. And so we kind of want to take control of it. And then you've got people who are in the generation after us um, and our children who have sort of gone, I'm just, why would I not know more about myself? It's like a fundamental shift in like the desire to learn stuff about yourself. And some of it's scary and unknown, I get it, but there's a lot that people want to know more about. So when we, when I sort of think about what's happening in 20 years time, uh, for my daughters who are sort of six and eight right now, like by the time they're teenagers, um, the amount of data that they could possibly get about themselves to understand, you know, a particular disease or sickness they've got is going to be like light years ahead of where their grandparents could get at the same age. Right. And that's just, that's happened in less than a hundred years, right? That's just, it's mind blowing stuff. So for us and for me in, in particular, I'm super, super excited about personalized health. I'm super excited actually about how doctors are not going to have to do the jobs that just send them mental, right? So if you think about, just think about a GP, right? When was the last time you went to a GP? Do you remember? Oh, geez, don't remember. No. Okay. So let's just play out the experience, which is typical right now. Um, you, you're feeling not well. You've decided I'm fine. You try and sleep it off. Then you get more unwell. And then ultimately you decide, I should probably go to the doctor. So you jump on an app somewhere and you find your local place and you rock in. Now that you don't have a family doctor, right? This is something that your parents had maybe, but you don't have that now. So you go and find your appointments like 1040 in the morning, you get there beforehand and you're sitting there and you're asked to fill out a clipboard questionnaire. That's on paper, by the way, it's not digital. Then that goes into the secretary who's filling out your Medicare details, which by the way, you had to have the card. You couldn't do that digitally either. And now you wait, then you go and see the doctor. The doctor doesn't know you from a bar of soap. And that doctor has 14 minutes on average to have this conversation, work out what to do with you. So you walk in there, a bit of chit chat. He asks, he or she asks you some questions. You're trying to explain what you're feeling, but you don't quite know what's going on. They've got like five minutes to work this out. So they do a bunch of stuff, standard stuff. Let's listen to your chest. Let's have a look at your eyes inside your ears. Yeah, unless there's something really obvious that's going on, they've got to then send away for tests of some kind. And they've got to wait for those tests to come back. And that's another whole situation. But if it's something they can't explain, it's like, well, I think you should just go and rest. Probably viral, if you haven't heard that before. And then hopefully it'll all pass. Then that happens like 20 times in a day for that doctor. I'm pretty sure when somebody signs up to medicine, like the smartest people on paper that we can possibly produce, that was not their idea of impact. 
And that's why you see a bunch of doctors who are sort of getting out of the profession in their late thirties. Cause they've realized this is, I thought there was more than this, the medicine, right? So what I'm really looking forward to is for people using services like drop and not necessarily drop like other services, 23andMe, you know, you, you name it, whole bunch of interesting stuff coming out of Singapore and Malaysia right now. A doctor can know before you come in that it's you. And because you as the patient shared certain data, you felt comfortable sharing that doctor's got early warning about what the conversation is going to be in some context. And now instead of you having to sort of fumble through your explanation that he or she doctor can go, Hmm, okay, got it. I think I know what this conversation's about. I'm kind of ready. I'm a whole lot more ready than I used to be. And now we can have a real conversation and then you can get treatment or you can get the right path to whatever you've got to do next. So that's where it's going. Right. Um, and people want that to go in that direction. Now it's got to work out how to make the incentives work. So that's why things coming down the pipe. And I'm super, I'm, I'm psyched about that. What's the future for drop bio? Oh, uh, look, future is, future is fun. Um, I think it's fair to say. So we launched our first product for pre-sale uh, about three weeks ago, which is called Wellbeing by Drop. Um, we have two clinical trials about to start, one in fertility, one in mental health, which are both hugely exciting for us. Um, we're working with a Red Cross blood service to help them know more about their donor base and, and for us to do some interesting work with them as well. And that's just in Australia. Then we look further afield and there's all these markets in Asia, um, Japan, South Korea, Malaysia, Singapore, all of which we're looking to move into in the coming years. And you know, it's interesting when you look at Australia, we've got a really mature healthcare system. Like, you know, we're, we're, we're just, we're blessed, right? When you look at other countries, we have got it together. When you go to other countries that don't have anything like what we've got, um, you go to the Philippines and there is some healthcare in the centers, but when you get out into the regions, there is no healthcare. So what's really exciting for us is being able to take our remote sort of sampling capability and what we're doing and sort of putting that into those environments, making it really applicable for, you know, a Filipino family or a Korean family and making it really relevant and then providing them with a level of care that they've never had before. That's just that. I mean, that's good for humanity period, but that just allows people to live a much better life. So from my point of view, that's just across a few select markets in Asia. Um, we haven't even started to, I haven't got time to talk to you about what will happen in the Americas and beyond, but we're just one company doing this. And the best part about being in biotech right now is that you don't have a whole bunch of competitors. You've got a bunch of worthy adversaries, right? These folks are doing really, really interesting stuff. And the likelihood of them being a competitor is less than them being a really outstanding partner. And that's how we create impact across the board, right? Drop can't do it by itself. 23andMe can't do it by itself. There are a bunch of companies that can come together and make that work. And I think you're going to see a bunch of consolidation happen over the next five years. And that's massively cool because we're all trying to point in the same direction. So yeah, good times, fun times. Phil, thanks for your time. Thank you. You bet, guys.